0: Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. It's good to see you today. Those of you that are here with me in Auditorium 1, those across the hall in Auditorium 2, and those that are joining us online, welcome. Glad that you're joining in, tuning in with us. If you tune in on a regular basis, what you'll find is that most often on Sunday mornings we are studying our way through whole books of the Bible, and for about a year now we've been studying our way through the Gospel of John, And in these weeks leading up to Easter, we plan things out so we would be right here in John 18 at this particular time because John 18 and 19 are about Jesus' journey to the cross, about his betrayal, his arrest, his trial, his suffering, and his death on the cross. And last week we looked at the first 14 verses of chapter 18, which is the story of Jesus' betrayal by Judas and his arrest and we're gonna pick back up in that story uh, today. Now, you know, every spring, most of us, or many of us, fall victim to March Madness, and uh, some of you are such diehard fans that you can't imagine heaven without March Madness, and we were all disappointed when it was canceled last year, but it doesn't look like there's any plans to cancel this year. And I admit, I don't follow college basketball faithfully throughout the season, But pretty much every year I do fill out a bracket, and uh, we have our own uh, Fellowship Greenville office pools, a staff pool here, which I've never won. And um, uh, as many of you know, uh, a lot of times the the final game uh, seems to come down to this uh, uh, 18, 19, 20-year-old kid standing on the free throw line with one second left on the clock. And if he misses the shot, he knows he'll be the goat on campus, the goat of his state. 20 years from now, he'll be in counseling, reliving this moment. Uh, If he makes the shot, he'll be the hero. His picture will be in his hometown newspaper on the front page. And one day, he could probably run for governor. Uh, He's standing there. He dribbles the ball. The other team calls timeout uh, to rattle him. So he's on the sideline. Uh, his weighing his entire future everything depends on him I mean this is the one that matters and his teammates uh, they pat him on the back to encourage him but they don't speak to him he's made the shot thousands of times but the question is will he make it this time so he stands there he bounces the ball uh, up and down his left leg is quivering at the knee 30,000 fans are yelling and they're waving banners and handkerchiefs and those little french fry looking things. I don't know what those are. And huge number one fingers, you know, to distract him. And, uh, and we've seen it go both ways, right? I mean, if he makes the shot, the crowd goes wild. He's pounced on by his teammates, drenched in Gatorade as the losers are sitting on the sidelines with towels over their heads and many of them are crying But his teammates pick him up on their shoulders, and they they carry him to cut the cords of the basketball net, and his grin fills the entire TV screen. But if he misses the shot, we know that scene as well. And we know something of how he feels because we live in a world where everything depends on us. Everything depends on us making the shot every time. And the pressure is intense. Nearly every week I talk to someone who is laboring under a load of guilt from missing the critical foul shot. I mean, sometimes the guilt comes from some old sin that even though it's been confessed a hundred times, the person just can't seem to forgive themselves. Sometimes it comes from broken relationships, a a, a marriage gone wrong, an estrangement from a child, a, a, a wall that separates uh, two people who had been close friends. All too often, the guilt is self imposed. Sometimes we think, well, I've just blown it so badly that there's no way to dig myself out of this, so why even try? Why even bother? I mean, I can't go back and make the shot again. I mean, I missed it. There's not much left. And people tell themselves, I'm just no good. I'll never measure up. People tell themselves, God is so disappointed in me that He'll never use me again. And the accusing voices in our heads, can beat us unmercifully. And of course, we know that God is a forgiving God. We know that he promises not to hold our sins and shortcomings against us. But to say, I believe God forgives my sins is not the same thing as saying, I believe my sins are forgiven. I believe that this sin is forgiven. Forgiveness may or may not be followed by relief. Sometimes it's followed by Guilt. And it's not Jesus' word we doubt, it's ourselves. Counselor and author David Siemens wrote, many years ago, I was driven to the conclusion that the two major causes of most emotional problems among evangelical Christians are these. Number one, the failure to understand, receive, and live out God's unconditional grace and forgiveness, and the failure to give out That unconditional love, forgiveness, and grace to other people. We read, we hear, we believe a good theology of grace, but that's not the way that we live. The good news of the gospel of grace has not penetrated to the level of our emotions. And I think he's right. That's true. Sometimes the grace that we say we believe doesn't go deep enough. It's not real enough for us to forgive ourselves. So what do you do with a guilty conscience. Interestingly enough, John, the author of the Gospel of John, he, he wrote a letter, and it's, we call it 1 John, his first letter, and in chapter three, he actually talks about dealing with an accusing conscience. John tells us that when our hearts condemn us, we need to hold on to this amazing truth. 1 John three nineteen, he says, this is how we know that we belong to the truth, And this is how we reassure our hearts in his presence. Whenever our heart condemns us, we know that God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Now, isn't that good? I mean, he's saying when you've blown it big time, when you feel guilty, reassure yourself. Tell yourself that God is greater than my feelings. He he knows everything there is to know about me. He says, reassure yourself with the truth that God is greater than your heart, greater than your feelings, greater than your guilt, greater than that accusing conscience because what God says about us is more important than what we say about ourselves. And he says we need to reassure ourselves that God knows all things. He knows everything that's in our heart. He knows the remorse and the regret that we feel. He knows that you've confessed and repented of that sin, and he knows the real you, the you that wants to love God and love other people with all your soul and strength and body and mind. He knows those things, and the point is we need to reassure ourselves of what God says about us rather than what the voices in our heads say about us. And this is so very important. And it's interesting because this week in our study through the Gospel of John, we actually see a case study of how this works out in real life. And I want to look at how God deals with us when we've blown it and we can't seem to forgive ourselves. The question is how does the fact that God knows our hearts, the fact that he knows all about us, how does that affect how he deals with us when we fail? That's what I want to focus on today. How does God deal with us when we are beating ourselves up for messing up, for not measuring up? And the passage we've come to today gives us an answer to that question. Now, as I said, we're in a section of the Gospel of John, chapters 18 and 19. We've entitled The Journey to the Cross. And last week, we looked at Jesus' arrest, his betrayal by Judas Iscariot, and his arrest by, the, uh, by this huge crowd of Roman and Jew- Jewish soldiers. And so we pick back up in chapter 18, and here we find a perfect example of how Jesus deals with Peter's sin and his uh, guilty conscience. But I don't wanna get ahead of myself, so let me just go back and by way of review kind of fill, fill you in on where we're at. Jesus knows that the time has come for him uh, to leave this world and return to the Father. And he's met with his disciples to observe a final Passover meal in an upper room in Jerusalem uh, to fill them in on how they will continue to have a relationship with him after he dies on the cross and, and rises from the dead and returns to the Father. How is it possible to have a relationship with Jesus when he's no longer present with you? And the whole emphasis revolves around this idea of abiding, of learning to live in fellowship with God, learning how to stay connected with Jesus through the Holy Spirit that Jesus will send and put inside everyone who puts their faith and trust in him. So he talks with them about that. He concludes that last supper with a prayer for the disciples' unity and they praise that the Father would protect them from the evil one and the persecution that's coming. That's in chapter 17. And then he and his men walk from Jerusalem down through the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, up to the Garden of Gethsemane, a garden where evidently they had uh, spent some time on previous occasions. And it's there that Judas, the traitor, shows up with a detachment of Roman uh, soldiers to arrest Jesus. Now, the interesting thing about this story, the story of Jesus' arrest and trial, is that running alongside of what's happening to Jesus isn't the, is the account of Peter denying Jesus, not once, but three times. And this is, this is significant for at least two reasons. Uh, first, it's significant because back in chapter 13, Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him. Uh, Jesus has just told his disciples he would be leaving them. And he said that where I'm going, to the cross, you cannot follow, but you follow later. And the disciples are confused by this. They, they, don't, they haven't put it all together yet. So Peter asks Jesus in verse 36, he says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I'm going, you can't follow me now. But you will follow later. And Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? Now, by the way, I love this about Peter because you, you never have to wonder what he's thinking Some people, you never know what they're thinking. I mean, but Peter, Peter, he's like a gumball machine. Whatever's going on up top comes rolling out of his mouth. And so Peter says, verse 37, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. And and he's like, Jesus, I'll die for you. No matter what, I'm there for you. You can rest easy. I got this, bro. You can depend on me. Jesus, I'm your guy. verse 38, Jesus says, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. So, from the other Gospels, we learn that Peter was actually warned twice that he would deny Jesus, once here in the upper room, and according to Matthew and Mark, Jesus tells him again as they're walking to the Garden of Gethsemane. So, Peter's he knows what's coming. So, you would think that maybe he would write this down on a papyrus sticky note And to remind himself, don't deny Jesus, don't deny Jesus, don't deny Jesus. Stick it all over the place. But he doesn't think about that. He doesn't think he's capable of doing such a thing. Now, by the way, most of us tend to think that we know ourselves better than anyone else, right? Um, The truth is, God knows you better than you know you. And so do a lot of other people. I mean, how many of you thought that you knew who you were and then God brought some people into your life who showed you who you really were? I mean, I grew up as an only child, didn't have brothers and sisters. Uh, I wasn't spoiled because my parents didn't have enough money to spoil me, but I didn't have brothers and sisters, so I always thought of myself as kind of a patient, unselfish, easygoing, generous kind of guy. And I thought that until... I got married and had three kids. (laughs) And then I began to see how impatient and selfish and how comfort and convenience-seeking I really am. And it took years of God painfully chiseling away on me for me to wake up and begin to see myself the way God sees me and the way that most people see me. And he's still chiseling away on me for that. Well, that's what Jesus is doing with Peter here. Like, Like, Peter, you think you know who you are, but, but you don't have a clue. I'll tell you who you are. I'll tell you what you're going to do. There's, there's coming a time when you're going to deny me three times. And so what we have here in John 18 is the fulfillment of what Jesus said would happen. So Peter's denial is significant because Jesus predicted it. Now the second thing is it's significant because of how these two stories are woven together. Now, first of all, last week we saw in in the first nine verses, the first nine verses tell us about Jesus' arrest. And then verses 10 and 11 tell us that Peter tried to prevent the arrest by drawing his sword, and he cuts off Malchus' ear. This is a Mr. Potato Head moment. Uh, Jesus just reaches down, gets the ear, and sticks it back on the side of this guy's head. But right here, though, we do see that Peter meant what he said he really was willing to pick up a sword and die for Jesus he was gonna yeah I mean he he's I don't I don't get the whole thing of he with the ear but he had a sword in his hand he's a fisherman he's not a trained soldier and so but he's willing to take on 600 soldiers now uh, uh, follow along as I read verses 12 to 27 and watch how John goes back and forth between what's happening with Jesus and what's happening with Peter. Verse 12, so the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient for one man to die for the people. Verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. That would be John. And since John was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you're not one of that that man's disciples, are you? You're not a disciple of Jesus, are you? And Peter said, I am most definitely not. And, uh, and, and, and so the servants and the officers, they all gathered around a charcoal fire. Now remember the charcoal fire. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves and Peter was also with them and he was standing and warming himself by the fire. Verse 19, then the high Priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me and heard what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? And Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Verse 25, now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you're you're not one of this guy's disciples, are you? And he denied it. He said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, A a relative of Malchus, Mr. Potato Head, he asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? And Peter denied it, and a rooster crowed. Now, you see what I mean. John weaves the story of Jesus and Peter together. He goes back and forth between Jesus and Peter. Let me show you one more time, condensed version, the condensed version. Verses one through nine, Judas and the soldiers show up to arrest Jesus 10 and 11, Peter tries to stop the arrest. 12 through 14, Jesus is arrested and led to Annas, the high priest, to be questioned. Verses 15 through 18, Peter follows Jesus and stands outside in the courtyard. A servant girl questions Peter, and he denies knowing Jesus. Verses 19 through 24, Jesus is questioned by Annas. And then 25 and 27, Peter is questioned by someone in the crowd and then by the servant of the high priest, and Peter denies knowing Jesus two more times, and the rooster crows. So it's Jesus, Peter, Jesus, Peter, Jesus, Peter. The point, clearly, John wants us to focus on the shifting scenes between Jesus and Peter, between what's going on inside with Jesus' trial, and what's going on outside with Peter's trial, so to speak. It's like It's like a TV show or a movie where the scene keeps shifting back and forth between two characters in two different geographic locations to let us see how the plot is thickening and the movie is moving towards a certain climax. And the back and forth of the shifting scenes allows us to see things that the characters cannot see. We're able to see all the action. And a good writer or producer will show us all the action uh, in order to uh, help develop his or her theme so we don't miss the point that he's trying to make. It's kind of like watching a documentary about the Civil War on the History Channel, how the story goes back and forth between the North and the South and between Abraham Lincoln and General Lee. The shifting scenes help us see the big picture of what's going on, and that's what John is doing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's interweaving these two stories because he wants us to compare Jesus' interrogation with Peter's denial because there's a point that he doesn't want us to miss. So what's the point? Well, look at it. Jesus is being questioned inside by the high priest who's asking him about his disciples and his teaching. Verse 20. And Jesus says in verse 21, why are you questioning me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. So Jesus is saying, if you want to know about me, ask my disciples. Peter is outside being questioned about his relationship to Jesus. But instead of confessing Jesus, he's denying Jesus. You see it. The trial shifts back and forth between Jesus and Peter. And the point is, Peter misses the critical foul shot. This is the big one. And he throws a brick, not once, but three times. But that's not the end of the story. Now, most of the time, when we're going through a study like in the book of John, we kind of stay in the passage for the morning. But in order to see where John is going with this whole subplot of Jesus and Peter, we got to go to the end of the story. So in chapters 19 and 20, the storyline focuses entirely on Jesus. It's his, it focuses on his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection from the dead. And, of course, Jesus' story is what John wants us to focus on first and foremost, that God, in a human body, allowed himself to be murdered by the people that he, he came to save But he didn't stay dead, and we'll look at that story in more detail on Easter. But in these final chapters, there is this sub-story of Jesus and Peter that is very important as well. At the end of chapter 20, the risen Christ appears to the disciples as they were hiding out behind closed doors. And then eight, eight days later, Jesus appears to the disciples again. And then we come to chapter 21, and we find something very interesting. After all that's happened, Peter says, I'm going fishing. And the other disciples go with him. Now, I don't think any of them know what he's done. John might know that something's off, but I don't think any of them know that Peter has denied knowing Jesus three times. But, of course, Peter knows it. In fact, fact, I don't think Peter can think of anything else. Because if I know people, if I know myself... I know something of the mental and emotional and spiritual anguish that Peter feels. I don't think Peter's been able to sleep. I think he's played and replayed that courtyard scene and those conversations over and over and over a hundred times in his head. He wishes he could go back and do it all over again. I mean, he stood at the free throw line and he had three foul shots and he missed them all. And he is embarrassed and he is ashamed and his guilt is unbearable. He's seen Jesus twice now and the subject hasn't come up. He thinks about how Jesus has looked at him. He wonders what Jesus thinks of him. He wonders about what Jesus has said and what Jesus hasn't said. He can't get it out of his mind. So he says, I'm going fishing. And the others go with him and they fish all night and they don't catch anything. Well, Jesus shows up the next morning and he shouts to them from the shore, cast your net on the right side of the boat. And they do and they catch a boatload of fish. 153 fish, which I think is an interesting detail. 153 fish. And Peter realizes, of course, it's Jesus. And Peter, uh, he jumps out of the boat and swims to shore while the others follow behind, dragging a net full of fish. And it's interesting, the the way the story reads, it doesn't seem like Peter gets there any faster than any of the other guys in the boat that are dragging a a, a net full of fish. But they all get to the beach and they're enjoying a breakfast of fresh fish that Jesus prepares for them over a charcoal fire. Now, do you remember the last time that Peter was in front of a charcoal fire? I mean, it's in the courtyard of denial. Peter was outside warming himself by a charcoal fire. Smells familiar, Right? I think it smelled familiar to Peter. John doesn't record anything that was said during the breakfast. But after breakfast, Jesus initiates a conversation with Peter. And here it is in John 21, 15 through 17. Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. A third time Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things and you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now the thing that struck me when I first read this was this question. Why did Jesus call Peter By his old name, Simon, son of John. He's calling him by his old name. Why? Well, because Peter has gone back to his old life. He went back to fishing, which is kind of another form of denial. Peter is a believer, but he hasn't been a follower. He's a new person, but he's gone back to his old life. And guilt and shame can do that to you. How many of you, God made you a new person, but you still go back to some of your old habits? Yeah, every one of us in the room ought to be raising our hand at that. Jesus is addressing Peter by his old name and his new name. And what he's inferring is, you were Simon, but I made you Peter. But sometimes you act like a believer, and other times you act like an unbeliever. Sometimes you follow me, but sometimes you walk away from me. Sometimes you worship me, but sometimes you deny me. We need more of Peter and less of Simon. Peter needs to increase and Simon needs to decrease. Less of who you were and more of who you are. So he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? What do you think? Do you think Peter loved Jesus? I mean, if someone betrays you or even denies knowing you, do you think that person could still love you? Well, most people don't think so. And I think that's one of the reasons why Peter has suffered so much at the hand of Bible teachers and Bible commentators. I think it's why most of the sermons I've ever heard about Peter beat him like a pinata on Cinco de Mayo. I mean... Yeah, Peter failed. I am not minimizing his sin. I mean, if you've ever had someone turn their back on you or betray you, or, or if you ever had somebody refuse to stand up for you or refuse to defend you, and they just went along with whatever everybody else said about you, or, or maybe they hid the fact that they even, even knew you. If that ever happened to you, I mean, that hurts. That, that wounds you. It, it disappoints you. And sometimes when things like that happen, a relationship is lost forever. So yeah, Peter failed, but I guarantee you that is not the way that God remembered Peter. That's not the way that God remembers Peter. Frankly, I think we do Peter an injustice if we don't remember other things about him. For example, no matter what you think about his denial of Jesus, Peter was a man of raw courage. I mean, all the other disciples with the exception exception of John, deserted Jesus and ran away from him. In fact, Peter emerges as the only brave man in the bunch because when the Roman soldiers and the Jewish religious officials come to arrest Jesus in the garden, I told you last week that the Greek word for the, for the word detachment of Roman soldiers meant 600 Trained, battle hardened Roman soldiers, at least 600 men in the group. And when Peter drew his sword to protect Jesus, he wasn't merely taking on Malchus, the lowly servant. Peter was willing to fight the whole crowd. And in that moment, he was willing to die for Jesus. So, whatever else you think about Peter, keep in mind that his failure was the failure of a man of courage. He stood up for Jesus in a a situation where all the other disciples stood frozen and motionless, and then they ran away. To put it bluntly, Peter failed because he was a man of courage. We also need to see that Peter failed because he loved Jesus and was loyal to him. How does that work? Well, the other disciples didn't follow Jesus through the process of the trial. Again, when they were let go, the other disciples ran away. Peter and John were the only ones who stayed with Jesus, and I don't think Peter followed out of some morbid curiosity. I'm convinced that he followed out of devotion and love. I think Peter was hoping against hope that something would happen, that someone might intervene and he could be a part of rescuing Jesus. And of course, it didn't happen. And yes, Peter failed and he crumbled under the pressure of that moment, but he failed because he loved Jesus too much to abandon him. But again, how can that be? I mean, well, think think of the kid on the foul line in the final game of March Madness. Yeah, he might miss the shot, right? He might miss the shot, but he had the courage to be on the team. He had the courage to be on the line. He had the loyalty to put himself under that kind of pressure. And I think it's worth noting here that Peter's failure didn't ultimately destroy him. When, Peter, when Jesus confronted Peter after the resurrection, he asked Peter three times... Simon, son of John, do you love me? Three times, that was deliberate. No question in my mind it was deliberate. Jesus gave Peter the chance to reaffirm his love for him and to wipe out his threefold denial. And, and that's the amazing climax of the story. Three times Peter could say from the depth of his heart, Lord, you know, you know I love you. And he was able to say that to cover the three times he said, no, I don't know the man. I don't know the man. But it was his heartfelt love for Jesus that made Peter great. It was Peter's love for Jesus that was the evidence of God working in his life. Okay, but, but, but who's, the, who's the real Peter? That's a question. Who's the real Peter? Is the real Peter the one who in this crucial moment gave in to the social pressure to deny him? Or is the real Peter the one who says, Jesus, I do love you. You know I love you. Who's the real Peter? Well, I agree with William Barclay, the commentator. He says that the real Peter declared, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It was the real Peter who declared his loyalty in the upper room. It was the real Peter who drew his sword against overwhelming odds. It was the real Peter who followed Jesus through his trial and wouldn't desert him. It was not the real Peter who cracked under pressure. It was not the real Peter who denied his Lord. Oh, sure, for on the surface, on the surface, judging only on the basis of what they did, you might not see much difference between Judas and Peter. And again, I think that's why most of the sermons I've ever heard on Peter's denial beat him unmercifully. But that is not how Jesus deals with us. Beneath all our failures and all our sorry responses to pressure, Jesus sees the real person. He sees the, the real you, and he seeks us out when we've made a mess of our lives. When we stumble and we fumble our way, away our opportunities, Jesus comes to us and puts us back on our feet again. Now, here's the big idea. Here's the point. Finally, the point. That, that I've been working towards with everything that I've shown you this morning, with this back and forth between Peter and John, uh, Jesus and Peter. Here's the point. Jesus did not define Peter by his worst moment. Jesus did not define Peter by his work, worst moment, and neither does he you. Jesus does not define you by your worst moment. Jesus judges us not by the incidents of our faithlessness, but by our faith; not by our failures due to our sins, but by our successes in appropriating His grace. Yes, Peter failed, and yes, you and I failed Jesus too. But it's critical for th- that we know that. It's and critical for us to understand that Jesus doesn't pass his judgments on us when we crack under pressure. The apostle Paul put it this way beautifully in Romans 8.1. He says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. By the way, do you, do you understand that if someone fails you, they may still love you? They just failed you. Peter still loves Jesus. He just failed him. For sure, sometimes when somebody fails you, sometimes that person doesn't love you. But sometimes they do love you. That's Peter. And the difference is how they respond to the failure. Remember what John said in his letter? 1 John 3, God is greater than our hearts, and God knows everything. What does Peter say right here? He says, Lord, you know I love you. You know all things, and you know I love you. And Peter was right. Jesus did know Peter loved him, and that was all that mattered. I mean, think about it. Jesus knew Peter would deny him before it ever happened, and Jesus persevered with Peter. While Jesus was on trial for his life, he knew that Peter was outside denying him. At that very moment, Jesus knew all that. And Jesus knew Peter loved him even though he caved under pressure. You ever deny knowing Jesus? How many of your friends know that you're in church this morning? How many of your family don't know that you're a Christian? How many of your co-workers know that you're a Democrat or a Republican, but they don't know that you're a Christian? How many of you post all kinds of things in social media, but you never say a word about your faith? You see, there's a social cost to identifying yourself with Jesus. I experienced that um, one time flying back from uh, my, one of my doctor of ministry conferences that I ha- have gone through every year since 2000 uh, up in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. I boarded a plane. I sat down next to a guy, and we struck up a conversation, and we're having a nice conversation talking about the weather and, uh, and, and travel and that kind of thing, and so he says, so, tell me, uh, Charlie, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a preacher. I pastor a church in Greenville, South Carolina. And he went, oh. And he reached and got his headphones, and he turned his head away from me and put his headphones on. And at that moment, I ceased to exist on planet Earth. I mean, he didn't speak to me again for the rest of the trip. There is a social cost To identifying with Jesus, and you better know that that cost is getting higher and higher day by day as as this country is going down the tubes. You better be ready because it's coming. And on the night that Jesus was on trial for his life, Peter felt like he was on trial for his life. And the cost was too high on that night, and he caved under pressure. But the good news is, God knows all things, He knows all about us, He knows our sins. Past, present, and future, he knows our hearts, and he knows whether you have a heart that's like Judas or whether you you have a heart like Peter. And listen, if you love Jesus but you failed him, Jesus knows you love him. He knows you. He knows your heart. Even when you miss that critical foul shot and you can't seem to forgive yourself, Jesus loves you for the person That he created you to be and he delights in you even when sometimes in shameful ways we stumble and trip and fall flat on our face. People, that really is amazing grace. My favorite definition of grace is this. I think it came from Tim Keller, but I've said it so many times. I claim it as my own now as do a lot of other Christians I know. But grace means there is nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there is nothing you can do to make God love you less. Nothing you can do to make God love you more. Nothing you can do to make God love you less. Peter's story is a perfect illustration of that. Paul wrote to Timothy, young Timothy, in 2 Timothy 2.13, Jesus is faithful even when we are faithless. And Peter's story is a perfect illustration of that truth as well. That's so different from the, the picture of God that I grew up with. Oh, I, I grew up hearing about a God who forgives our sins and who has forgiven all of our sins on the cross, but I always felt like, yeah, he forgives me, but he does so reluctantly. Know what I mean? I mean, he would, he, that God, yeah, he, he will forgive me after he makes me squirm for a while. Like, Jesus is like, what, again? Are you here again? Are we talking about this again? Are you kidding me? Yes, I forgive you, but it better not happen again, buddy. Is that how you see Jesus when you come to him? After you've blown it? Listen, the God of the Bible isn't anything like the so-called gods of other religions that make you work for forgiveness. No, the God of the Bible is always ready to forgive you. He died to make forgiveness possible. He takes the initiative to forgive. He seeks us out to forgive, and he delights forgiveness in forgiving you and restoring you. Do you believe that? He delights in forgiving you. I'm reading a great book right now called Gentle and Lowly. It's gonna be a classic. It's by a guy named Dane Ortland. He quotes an old Puritan writer, Thomas Goodwin, who wrote this. He says, Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased and enlarged by his showing grace and mercy in pardoning, relieving, and comforting his children here on earth. Isn't that good? Christ's joy and comfort and happiness and glory are increased and enlarged when he shows us his grace and mercy, when he repardons us all over again and brings that comfort of a clear conscience rather than a guilty conscience. Jesus delights in forgiving us. Jesus was not put out with Peter. He was not mad at Peter and so with us. Jesus doesn't get frustrated or flustered with us when we come to him for forgiveness, for for renewed pardon. No, he went through the horror of death on the cross because of the joy set before him, as the writer of Hebrews says. What was the joy set before Jesus? The joy was the joy of his forgiveness. The joy that he would secure forgiveness for us. The joy of providing us with a limitless supply of mercy and grace. Jesus is never reluctant to forgive. What blocks forgiveness is not God's reluctance. It's our reluctance to admit we're wrong, to repent of sin, and to receive his grace. God's arms are always extended, outstretched. We're the ones that turn away. We're the ones that allow ourselves to labor under piles of guilt. We're the ones who refuse to allow him to embrace us. And I want to say one more thing before I circle the field to land the plane. Peter's story also tells us that your greatest ministry can come out of your greatest failure. The thing that you're most ashamed of can become the thing that is most powerful in your life. The place where you have not been the hero of the story is the place where Jesus is the hero of the story. And some of you have regrets. And some of you failed. Big failed. All of us have faults and flaws. We carry we carry things that we're ashamed of and embarrassed by, and maybe, maybe, maybe you've even done some of those things as a Christian. That's Peter. That's Peter. But again, Jesus loves you. He pursues you. Jesus forgives you. Jesus restores you, and Jesus can use you again. Why? Like, wh- Why would God use a guy like Peter? I mean, after what Peter did, why would God even bother with him? Because God does perfect work through imperfect people. He delights in doing perfect work through imperfect people. Peter does change, and he becomes the leader of the early church. He preaches on the day of Pentecost, and thousands of people get saved. He heals someone, and thousands more get saved. In the book of Acts, he's walking by faith. He's walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. And and so the, the people who crucified Jesus, the same people who crucified Jesus, come after him and they arrest him. But this time, rather than denying Jesus, he goes to jail for Jesus. But Peter's progress is not perfection. Later in Galatia, Peter, a more mature man that God has used in a great way Peter in Galatia peers, uh, uh, caves to peer pressure again. Lots of Greeks have come to Jesus through his preaching, but when his Jewish brothers showed up and criticized him for taking meals with the Greeks, a bit of racism pops out of Peter, and he and he quits eating with the Greeks and he treats them like second-class Christians. And Paul calls him out, rebukes him for that in front of the whole church. Moral of the story, Peter wasn't a guy who struggled with sin and then he became perfect. No, he's a guy who was not perfect, but he made progress. He made progress. And he went on to write two books that are included in our New Testament. First and second Peter. Now, are those books perfect? Absolutely they're perfect. They were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The books are perfect. Is Peter perfect? No. God delights in using imperfect people to do perfect things. In fact, God's rather fond of imperfect people, of people who know they're not perfect, people who know they desperately need his grace as much today as when they first came to faith in Jesus. Brendan Manning tells a story of an Irish priest who, while walking on a tour of a rural parish, saw an old peasant kneeling down beside the road, and he heard the old peasant praying, and he was so impressed, he, he said to the peasant, you must be very close to God. And the peasant looked up from his prayers, and he thinks for a moment, and then he smiles and he says, yes, he's very fond of me. I like that. Listen, God is very fond of you. Even when you miss the big opportunities, even when you fail big time, he stands outstretched arms, ready to forgive you and restore you to himself. He, he knows your heart. He knows your sins and your shortcomings, and he loves us unconditionally, and he wants to restore you to fellowship and to service if you'll let Him. How does God deal with us when we're beating ourselves up for messing up? How does God deal with us when we beat ourselves up for not measuring up? He deals with us in compassion and mercy and grace. He loves you, He's greater than the, the voices inside your head that's telling you lies. He loves you. He knows your heart. He has forgiven you, and he will always forgive you because all your sins have already been forgiven, past, present, and future on the cross. And God's amazing grace and his unconditional love for you is the cure for an accusing conscience. All you have to do, all you have to do is ask Peter. He'll tell you. Would you bow your head? If you're struggling under the guilt of some sin, a sin you've confessed many times, but the guilt still weighs heavy on your heart, reassure yourself with this amazing truth. Tell yourself this amazing truth could even say it in a prayer. Jesus, you know my heart. You know I love you. You knew that I would fail you. But you've already forgiven me. You forgave me when you died for me. Jesus, thank you that you paid for all my sins, past, present, and future and you're greater than my guilt, and because of your cross, I bear my guilt no more." Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you that you don't write us off and cast us away when we fail, when we fall short, when we blow it big time. Thank you that you know our hearts. You know who we are deep in the core of our being. And you deal with us graciously and patiently. And you delight when we come to you and confess our sin and receive your grace. God, I pray that what we've heard this morning would in no way never give us an excuse to sin, but that it would be your loving kindness and your mercy and grace that motivates us to live for you, that motivates us to passionately pursue life and mission with Jesus for it's in his name and for his greater fame that we pray these things, amen.